Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. We return once again with another episode of Two Developers Down Under. I am joined yet again by the effortlessly existential Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I believe we got a complaint the other day saying we don't say what day it is. is yeah, correct? actually, the, the complaint was my wife. Oh. And she, she does that for episodes. For you know, a lot of episodes in the has in the past, which is saying like, oh, you're always talking about the thing of the day, but you never mention the day. But I think that's the fun. I think we should mention the thing of the day, and if people want to work out what day it is, they can go look it up. Oh, you have to find it actually. Yeah, it, we, can like, do, we can. It's another level of learning. So it essentially means we just redeclare the mistake we made to be, you know, made on purpose. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Either that works for, or, or works for me. Either that or she could go look at the podcast and see when it was posted, which is normally the day that we do it. Well, you know, she's just in the other part of the house. You could just like look it up right now if she wanted to. <laughs> so she probably is aware. Anyway, moving along. Um, usual shenanigans. Okay. So what what interesting stuff have you found today? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on today. Yeah, there are a bunch of things. Um, one I found was um, today in 1972, Apollo 16 landed on the moon. Um, the other thing that I personally find quite interesting is um, in 1978, um, a Korean airplane, Flight 902, was shot down by the Soviet Union, and that incident has, you know, a whole trail of conspiracy theories behind it. Really, really interesting. Lots of people have written books about that, and I read like one or two of them. Um, so that's a quite interesting story if people are interested in like spy and conspiracy theories. So there was a plane that was flying that got shot down. Yeah, a Korean airplane, basically a 747, and, you know, the, the Russians claimed they entered Russian airspace, and then, like, a few fighters shot them down, basically. But okay. it's all not really that clear what exactly happened there. Yeah. All right, the ones I've got, which I think clearly beat you. Pasteurization was invented today, 151st anniversary. Mm. Uh, famous baseball field, the Wrigley Field, 1916, 97th anniversary of today. What, what is the Wrigley Field? It's a baseball field in the U.S. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Sorry. The French Revolutionary War began today, 221 years ago. Ooh. Which I thought was a good one. Um, there was one more. Uh, oh, radium, first isolated today. Yeah, I saw I that when I, looked, when I looked around, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Cook reaches the reaches the Eastern Australia. It doesn't make sense, but that's what it reads. Uh, 1770. Um... And Shirley Temple makes her first movie debut in 1934. Yeah, I have the feeling you won this one. This stuff was actually better. There you go. Boom. Nailed it. (laughs) Nailed it. Alrighty, so we have a guest with us today. We do. Do you want to introduce him since you've known him longer than I have? Yes, I can do that. Um, That comes a bit as a surprise that I have to... Come up with a formal introduction. So yes, our guest is um, J- yeah, our guest is JD Trask, um, a friend of mine from Wellington here, and we know each other for quite a few years. And JD joins us to talk about you know general whatever stuff we come up with, but also about error handling, more specifically. Cool and hi. <laughs> hey, I was JD. finding it really difficult not to chuckle there listening to you guys. Uh, things of the day, um, yeah, the Wrigley Baseball Park. I think that sunk you. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really, you know, one of those tough things. Like, if you're not into baseball or into U.S. sports, you know, how would you know that this is a famous really baseball Really famous. Part? It's been in about a million movies. How really? Know? Never mind. What what team is playing there? Oh, now you're asking me the wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Dude, really? It, it, team. It's, it's the... Hold on one sec. It's the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What league do they play in? Oh, it's the, it's the big ones, whatever the, the main league is. The, the, the big leagues. You the have league, yeah. so, oh, no clue, Mark. Oh, man. <laughs> Interesting. Whose phone is ringing there? <laughs> That's mine. Apparently, my wife is calling me, and I don't know why. Um, go on, keep going. I'll send an SMS. Okay, so, JD, tell us what's going on. Cool. So uh, I'll give you a, a brief background on, on myself. So um, I um, set up a, and run a company in Wellington, New Zealand called Mindscape, M-I-N-D-S-C-A-P-E. Yep. And uh, we build software development tools. And 
until late last year, we predominantly built for the .NET developer audience, and uh, most of our customers are are overseas in about 80-odd countries. And uh, we recently uh, added a new product to our lineup that we've uh, delightfully called Raygun at uh, raygun.io, and it's a, an error reporting service. And this is uh, sort of our first branching out of that .NET space where we are supporting error logging across a bunch of different platforms. And uh, recently with, with Kai, I've been working uh, with him on adding some top-notch uh, ColdFusion support into that product so ColdFusion developers can report errors into it. So that's kind of my brief background in the professional world. Um, I was a software developer uh, for a few years before starting the company. I don't write as much code anymore, but uh, I can certainly... Are you a manager? Is that, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I'm a wearer of too many hats, is what I would say. I'm yep. responsible for a little bit of coding, ordering pizza for the team, that sort of high-level function. Uh, yeah, a bit all, bit all over the show. So okay. you're actually the, the developer's PA, basically. <laughs> Making sure <laughs> they, they get paid and get food and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I prefer the term developer's bitch, but yeah, that uh, PA works better. But um, yeah, it's... It's a fun job. I mean, we're a small team, but, uh, yeah, they, they sort of crank out all the good stuff, and I just take the credit for it. Sounds like a perfect plan. <laughs> so Thanks. what is Raygun exactly doing? I mean, how can people can people use it if they want to? What is it? Give us the, give us the yeah. big overview. Tell us what it, what it does and what makes it amazing and stuff. Right. So the, the, the sort of 50,000-foot view is that um, it's a cloud-based or hosted solution where you drop a small component into your software, be it in ColdFusion, .NET, Ruby, PHP, whatever, and it will automatically, by default, report any unhandled errors. And uh, then that gets sent up to, to our servers, and we give you a nice pretty dashboard that shows you the error trends. We do some intelligent grouping on the types of errors that are occurring so that you can manage them more easily. You can then drill in and get extra information about what was actually going wrong um, to try and more quickly resolve those errors. And that's that's kind of the very core of the product uh, at the moment. And we've got a, a team of people sort of adding new things to it where we're planning to add some generalized logging um, and, and other cool features in there to help developers fix problems quicker and help businesses resolve problems that could be losing them money um, quicker as well. So we've, we've tried to take the approach of not being uh, a platform for, well, not being a product that targets a single platform. So there's there's plenty of other solutions out there that uh, do something similar, but they tend to target a single uh, sort of programming language. Like there's a bunch that are out there for uh, Ruby and Ruby on Rails. But, well, if you then uh, tie them into, say, .NET, uh, which is my background. Um I would say I, I don't know if you're writing these things on this uh, on this piece of interactive paper here. On I'm my just screen. I'm just I'm just writing them to write them down so that I can remember to ask you. It's all right. You don't have to pay attention. Okay. Well, you can ask me that one, eh? So, what's your favorite feature of Raygun? <laughs> I'm surprised at that question, Mark. Um, <laughs> just start writing stuff in the Google Doc. To be honest, the thing that I I personally liked the most uh, about about the Raygun product, because we are all developers at Mindscape, uh, or at least have a background in it, um, I remember working on large systems in the past where something goes wrong, and, and being the, the diligent software developer that I was, I would email myself the, you know, the error details, and then you would sort of go away for a long weekend or something like that, and you would find that you had some error that occurred in a tight loop and you'd come back and find your mailbox full with, you know, 130,000 error emails that you'd mailed to yourself. And that was always a real a real pain. And so we wanted to try and make the, the system more human-friendly, um, which is kind of rare a little bit in developer tools. And so we've made it so that uh, the emailing is smart enough to sort of do threshold uh, tracking and also time-based checks. So if an error was happening a thousand times in an hour, we wouldn't send you a thousand emails. We'd send you a first sighting email. We'd send you another email a minute in saying, hey, this has occurred 30 times in the last one minute. Five minutes later to say, hey, this is still occurring and it's trending upwards or downwards, um, that sort of thing. So we're not 
filling up people's inboxes uh, with notifications. Uh, we, we're kind of trying to do it in a bit of a smarter way. So that, that I think, is my personal favorite feature. That sounds pretty good. It also looks like you've got a lot of pretty charts and graphs. Yeah, um, yeah, pretty charts and graphs. They they work for for some people. They don't work for others. But uh, I I think it's been quite good in the last few years that developer tools have generally been starting to improve their uh, sort of aesthetics a little bit. Because uh, let's be honest, some of the some of the dev tools um, have been have been pretty ugly to deal with. Even things that you have to stare at all day long. So we wanted to make something that would look good uh, up on a you know, on a TV screen or on your computer, and you know, it's uh, it doesn't distract you. It just helps you find the information you need. And the other thing is obviously, if something is visually appealing, it is a much easier sell, you know, towards management in large organizations. As, as sad as it is, but I find that all the times, you know, like if you try to get a company or a client on board with some th service, if it looks good, it's so much easier to convince people of actually But using it. That's absolutely true. I mean, one of the, the uh, possibly the only thing I remember from university was uh, in a HCI, human computer interaction class, and it, it resonated with me for years, was uh, comment that the interface is the system to the end user. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as developers, we get very hung up on, you know, the purity of the code in the background and what's it like and, you know, as well as it's structured. And we get so focused on that that we quite often forget about the fact that the end users never see the code. They don't care about the code. All they care about is the interface because to them that is the system. So why put all the effort into a really solid back end if you're then just going to undermine your whole effort by not putting a decent user interface on it? Yeah, that's quite interesting. And I mean, a lot of people still don't put a lot of effort into the UI, as we've seen, I mean, a few times in the past in large IT systems here in, in New Zealand, for example. I, I, Mark would probably not know that, but here in New Zealand, we had like a, um, a system for the education ministry's payroll for all the teachers in the country, basically called NovoPay, that was like developed over years um, by an external company. And um, apparently from, I mean, the whole rollout went quite badly. That's probably quite polite <laughs> if you say, like, badly. <laughs> and, um, you know, the first report into that whole project and where it is basically identified so many issues with the user interface that people, that it was never properly end-user tested. No yeah. consideration went into, um, like, how payroll people in schools would actually be able to work with that, et cetera, et cetera. And that certainly contributed to all the problems that this system has, even a, nearly a year after rollout, I think. Mm. It has been a fairly fairly bad system here in New Zealand. Um, uh, I know it's been – I think it's been written with uh, – the, well, the front end is all built using – is it uh, Oracle Forms? Or Oracle something? Forms, yeah. Which yeah. has a – distinct sort of Windows 3.1, Windows 95 sort of feel to it. Uh, certainly, yeah, the, the, one of the reasons that behind that project being developed was to improve the data entry, and they ended up taking a big step back, as, as Kai kind of points out there, that that's actually been key to some of the problems. It is. It's a quite interesting thing that I see popping up more, more and more often, actually, not just with Oracle Forms, but with a lot of enterprise software where I um you know I see products that now start to support HTML5 or HTML5 forms or stuff like that right um and you look at what those enterprise tools generate in terms of web pages or forms or stuff like that interactive elements and you just want you know you want to just want to die and rotate in your grave because it's so terrible so shocking in terms of the look and feel but also in terms of what the outcome of the actual enterprise solution is. And I think people are not really aware of that yet, um, that, you know, HTML5 is going to go down the way that potentially, you know, technologies like Flash and Flexwind or Silverlight or something like that with producing really bad code and really ugly systems in the near future as well, because it's just coming up to that to that peak of being used and it's 
um, you know, the purity of HTML5 and why it's so cool currently will go away quite quickly, I think. See, I have an, uh, a viewpoint on this. Um, if you look, uh, and I, I'll use an example within our own business. Uh, so we, we're quite a, a young player in the component market. So we build some of our products are visual components, you know, so for, say, Windows Presentation Foundation, you build, you know, a scheduler control and things like that to help developers move forward. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that when we built those, because they were the first things that we built, we wrote them from the ground up and we used all of the correct idioms for that platform. We had to think about everything because it was our first attempt at writing these things and a lot of thought went into the product. And we had a lot of users uh, and, and they became customers come back and say, hey, look, this is great because this works the way that this platform should work. Mm-hmm. And it was a common reason that people were shifting from uh, some of our competitors. The problem was was that the competitors had all built UI controls for the previous platform uh, known as Windows Forms and .NET Land. And so that already made this investment in how things looked and how they made it work. And therefore, they applied that same thinking when they wanted to bring out a product for the new generation. Mm-hmm. And so they very quickly churned out a new product. And it, it kind of was okay, but it didn't take long for you to realize that it was kind of all st- held together with uh, sort of chewing gum and sellotape and mm-hmm. uh, wasn't very good to work with. And I think, to, to you know, that that's a possibility with where we're having problems now is if you look at some of these HTML5 products and that that are coming out, I would sort of anecdotally say that if you if you dealt with a company that was building something new, maybe it's a new company, uh, they would be building something that would be far better written on HTML5. But if you grabbed something from a company that is decades old that's now just migrating to it as another platform, they're going to bring all of their bad habits, not necessarily you know, be looking to really leverage the platform's new features. Um, you can kind of also see it as another example in uh, the likes of the online accounting space, which you'll be well aware of, Kai, with with Zero here in mm-hmm. Wellington. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys have built a cloud-based uh, accounting platform that we use at Mindscape, and it's fantastic. And they've been competing with the older accounting software providers who build desktop products and they've been trying to build a good web accounting solution for the better part of the last five or six years and all of them build really crappy solutions that are really just trying to make their desktop software run inside the browser yeah Yeah. and it's a it's a substandard sort of experience for everybody on those platforms but a new player has come in can take you know can eat their lunch um I think I think it's just a problem with with people that are kind of just they're just moving because they have to move. That's where their users are going, so they kind of reluctantly adopt a new platform rather than putting the effort into it. And that is actually a very well point because you know when you look at the providers of enterprise software in that field, it is you know companies like Oracle, it's companies like Microsoft, it's a company like Adobe, for example. You know all those big old established players, they now try to jump on the HTML5 bandwagon, and that fits exactly that that model that you were sketching there, yeah? Mm. I saw a, a great comment the other day on Twitter that said, uh, when you when you go traveling, you pay extra for business class and you get a better experience. In the software world, you pay extra for the enterprise edition and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you pay more, you get less. Uh, it's kind of broken. It's a valid point, actually. Mm-hmm. What's so up? I had a, I, had a so. I was just having a quick poke around uh, some of your competitors, and uh, no, it looks like you're really right in terms of there aren't. I think I could maybe find one. This is a quick, very quick five minutes drop hole um, that does that is a bit more generic in terms of what it supports, but definitely visually from what I've seen, at least of the screenshots that you presented, the stuff you've got there interface-wise is really is really quite nice. Um, well, well, and for us, it's just the beginning. I mean, we have we have a team at the moment dedicated to relentlessly pushing this product forward. Um, and we have very big plans beyond just the error logging. Uh, so that was really... well, what sort of big plans? I'm very curious. <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't particularly want to make promises that uh, and have people that are sort of saying, hey, well, when you add this, then I'll sign up. I think they should go and sign up today for the error log. Um, oh, but give, them, give them a little tease, go and just, a, just a taste. 
Okay, well, um, just, just one a little taste. Things, things that you're maybe particularly excited about, maybe something like that. Okay, sure. I mean, one of the the first things that we're looking at, sort of uh, adding later this year, will be um, sort of a, a generalized logging. So this is not errors. This is just being able to sort of track things in your code. So think about times where you've just wanted to sort of record an event or make a, you know, like when you're writing JavaScript and you use a console.log or something like that, and you're just recording messages. We want to uh, bring that into Raygun so people can start tracking those, and then that way when we start, say, recording an exception, if we could then stitch together the sort of, let's say it was a web application, stitch together the request and be able to track those messages that led up to that point because we think that that's likely to provide some extra information. We also run a um, a bunch of custom things. We have it running inside Raygun now around the performance monitoring of the web application. And so this records things like the, you know, SQL generation cache hits, all that sort of uh, stuff, how long each method's taking to run. And uh, we, we're kind of recording and reporting all of that to ourselves, and we've been thinking about how we might look at... Uh, bringing that information into a reusable component that we could then bolt into the Raygun product as well. So try and give you this sort of wider understanding of your product, both in terms of when things are going wrong, but, you know, uh, you may consider something soft um, a mistake. So, for example, um, if performance falls outside of a certain um, range, you might consider that a fault that you need to, to fix up. Uh, yeah, we've also got some cool stuff coming in terms of a um, filtering and rules engine. So you might say uh, if an error appears to, uh, to have this information in the message or maybe it's from the server or it has this HTTP status code, automatically permanently ignore that error uh, so that I never get alerted about it because I know that that's probably just a junk message that I've put in or, or whatever. But would it go the other way where you're like, if a certain error comes in, filter it to this person versus other errors, go to these people? Things like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's something we've we've already been getting requests for from people yep. who are saying this is actually becoming almost my de facto to do list, uh, particularly people in in support roles where yep. because we have statuses in there to mark things as resolved or ignored, and you can put comments against it, and you can have unlimited team members. Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense that you then have this notion of being able to assign a, an, an error to somebody to deal with. Um, we're about to embark on a lot of work around integrating with different products, uh, things like Jira and Trello and GitHub issues. And uh, we've also been asked for support around different alerting mechanisms like PagerDuty yep. um, and, and things like that. So that will also help bolt the product more into people's traditional workflows. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, it, there's a lot of work to do. I, I, I won't lie, the, the roadmap is long, the backlog is huge. Uh, and growing, but uh, we're pretty well committed to to making it work. And we have, we are growing the the paying customer base at a at a good rate. Um, so I'm very happy with that. Uh, there's no sort of questions around um, the sustainability of the product from our end. Our yep. other products are all profitable. Uh, the business is strong. So yeah, it's. I mean, that's to be honest, one of the challenges we've faced in the in the building of development tools is. Um, Developers can build things, and so they do. And then you go and use some of these services, and uh, you know, six months, twelve months later, they go out of business. Yeah, or, they don't, often, or they don't continue doing anything with it. Yeah, well, a common thing is just um, not quickly enough, uh, sort of appreciating uh, the business concerns. So. Mm. You know, I, I signed up for a service yesterday, and it's a it's a great service, and it's um it's built by a French developer, and his pricing was thirty dollars a year, reduced to twenty four for the launch price, and I was kind of like twenty four two dollars a month, like seriously, mm. this, you know, charge more for this. I mean, it's not it's not rude to do that. You're providing me with far more than two dollars worth of value, you know, a month. Yeah. Um, and the thing that worries me about those sorts of plans is that I, I kind of fear that this, this product is going to fall by the wayside because this person's going to spend a year and say, hey, look, I'm up to the point where I'm making $200 a month, but it's just not worth it. Yep. Um, so they scrap it. So you always want to be paying 
what you feel something is worth rather than sort of always looking for the cheapest option. Um, I wanted to just jump back a sec. You talked about something interesting that I was curious about. You were talking about sort of a logging, a logging feature. Um, do you see that to be more like a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, like Paper Trail, which is like a huge actual log file aggregation service and search service, or more something like a, like a Kiss Metrics or a, or, or that sort of thing where you're, you're sort of picking and choosing what events you want to track? Uh, so I think the, the, the bigger win for people would be, uh, more the, the first case, so the paper trail type thing. Okay. And there's a bunch of services out there, as you, you know, that, that do that. Um, that's what I'd ideally like to, to see about getting rolled in there. Um, but, you know, like I say, the, these are things that are on, on the whiteboard, they're planned. Yep. So yep. don't, don't hold me to them, but, uh. They may or may yeah. not be implemented. Yeah, well, I just think uh, they could help people with diagnosing problems to have that sort of stuff in there. So. Yep. How large is the, the Raygun team at the moment, actually? How many people are actually contributing to it? Uh, internally, within the company, there's five people working on it. And that that's all developers, or is, is that including you, no, for example, no, that, from that a business in, point of view? That, that includes uh, me. At the moment, I'm fairly focused on the Raygun product, uh, Within, so I'm I'm looking at doing, you know, working on um, sort of partnership opportunities and things like that. Uh, so I, I do that. I do I help with this sort of uh, product. I guess you'd, you'd probably say I was partly the the product manager as well in terms of trying to make sure that we're building out the right features. Um, I'm not writing a whole lot of code around it, um, but. I'm sort of making sure that people are aware and, you know, every, whenever you release a new, uh, product, um, you've got to do a fair bit of work around getting the, the awareness out there. Yeah. And so that also includes, uh, our marketing or my marketing assistant, which is, uh, Hillary Cook. So she's, uh, been helping me with that sort of thing, uh, that sort of work. And then the rest is development. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the the backend application is written in .NET, I would assume, because that's kind of what your background as as a company is, isn't it? Yeah. So there's a few moving parts in there. Um, the the front end website that you go and log into is an ASP.NET MVC site, uh, and that's written in standard .NET, um, and that just runs on a on a Windows box. But the entire backend is written in Mono, which is an open source uh, port mm -hmm. of .NET. Mm -hmm. And so that all runs on um, several Linux boxes. Okay. Uh, and, yeah. How is that? So, now I'm just curious if that, that works really well for you. Yeah, I was actually interested in that as well, yeah. <laughs> it's um, When it works, it works wonderfully. Uh, what we've found is that uh, the, the usual challenges that obviously the, the guys are mostly doing work within Visual Studio on Windows and using .NET, and then they, you can obviously deploy that onto Mono, and it should, in inverted quotes, uh, work. But uh, what we quite often find is that there's you know some minor little thing that's missing in Mono that means that we need to... Um, sort of go back and rehash how we're going to attempt something or just usually it's just a very minor code thing yeah. uh, it also means you've got to be a little bit aware of some of the libraries that you're using um out there because often they're not tested on mono uh we use our own uh lightspeed product which is a an object relational mapper that we have made sure works on mono uh so quite often it's 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 been great for keeping the infrastructure costs down we've been getting great throughput uh, from it, we've not had any sort of problems with uh, general flakiness. It's usually sort of build the code, run it in the test environment against Mono. Oh, it crashes on load because some weird instruction isn't isn't handled or or whatever. Tweak that works. Deploy to production. So, uh, but on the whole, it's it's been fantastic, and uh, we we're great fans of what the uh, the guys at Xamarin have been doing in the Mono project. What is the the actual um, situation when it comes to Mono now? Because it used to be um, just an open source platform, right? Is that still the case, or have they commercialized part of of Mono now? No. So um, the Mono project is still an open source .NET development framework, and that, mm -hmm. that's that's it. The, the core of Mono. What happened was, and and hopefully uh, I don't get this too wrong, but um, Xamarin was spun out 
by the Mono guys uh, when uh, Novell got acquired. So they, they effectively got control of that project, mm-hmm. and, and they, they spun out Xamarin. So Xamarin effectively sponsors the Mono project, but then Xamarin, the, the company, is building uh, iOS and Android sort of, you know, cross-platform mobile yeah. solutions oh, yeah. and its idea and all that sort of stuff. And they, they've commercialized that, but that all sort of lives on top of um, the mono stack, which they, okay. yeah. So they kind of, while they sponsor it, I don't think you'd probably see them divorce themselves from that project any day soon because I don't think they really can um, because they, yeah, they need it. Um, and that, they're a really cool company. I, I was fortunate enough to, to catch up with some of them uh, in Boston when I was there last year. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, what's your cho- okay. No, you go. You go. What's your choice to you know use .NET on on Mono basically on a I assume Linux environment because you had the you have the .NET skills in house mainly or was it a technical choice that you you know particularly wanted to build it on .NET? Uh, our our strongest skills were on .NET, but having said that, we have a wide range of skills internally on on different languages. So we've we've got um, skills using uh, Node, Ruby, uh, F Sharp. Uh, well, I guess that's .NET effectively, PHP, bunch of different things. So mm-hmm. it was really a case of just familiarity and trying to get something out there sooner rather than later. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, and the reason for the the mono side was not just infrastructure costs, but as you can imagine, as we move forward with sort of um, general logging type solutions and things like that, uh, there's a lot of great things out out there on on the Unix stack yep. around that space that aren't really on Windows, and so by having all of the back end infrastructure sort of living in that environment, we have access to some great tools and and. Uh, other things that we can we can leverage. Yeah, that yeah, makes a lot of sense. sense. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, I don't, you don't have to say. I'm just curious if you're are you hosting on like AWS or something like that, or are you doing it internally? Or I'm just curious. There's one server under my desk at work now. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old two eight six that we bought twenty years ago. <laughs> That's right. No, it's all hosted uh, on Amazon's. Uh, sort of EC2 stuff, the databases in, uh, are inside um, Amazon's RDS product. So yep. we've got some MySQL stuff in there. We've started rolling out some additional instances that are running Elasticsearch for um, being able to filter and search over the data. How um, is that? We, I've looked at that briefly in the past, but we've ended up sort of rolling our own using Solar. I'm just curious how the, uh, the Elasticsearch is working out for you. Um, so far, it's been going quite well. So we're at the stage where... Uh, at, at the moment, it's in there behind the scenes, but people uh, can't search directly with it, although the pages being generated are leveraging it. So we don't okay. have this, the search visible yet. That's um, hopefully mm-hmm. going to be in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's been – it's really simple and easy to work with. The biggest problem that we've run into is uh, how susceptible uh, certain nodes are to – or shards within a node are to – corrupting themselves and they need to be rebuilt. So the standard approach um, with, with Elasticsearch seems to be that you go out there and you span it out across a bunch of different nodes and have a lot of sort of redundancy effectively in there. And when things go wrong, it can kind of, you know, fix itself up. Mm. Um, that, you know, every product has its ups and downs. Personally, I, I'd prefer to see it be a little bit more stable. Uh, yep. I saw enough problems sort of occurring internally when we were just testing this. Now, that could have been entirely down to our own level of inexperience as we were sort of wrapping our heads around Elasticsearch. We've got a, a lot of experience with dealing with um, the Lucene project itself directly, yep. but not with Elasticsearch. So, mm. um, yeah, I was, I was just a little bit surprised at how uh, how delicate that that can be, although now that they have the – I don't know if you saw, but um, – there's been a company spun up around Elasticsearch, and it's raised a whole lot of money. Um, and that project's now been, you know, been rolled into a whole lot of different places, um, like you know, GitHub search is all powered by Elasticsearch now. Okay. And 
and that they they had a similar they had a big outage as well um just after they put that out with uh data problems which they did their usual really good uh rundown on what went wrong mm-hmm. um but i feel like now that there's so many people looking at that project surely it's going to it's going to get better a little bit around that yeah so yeah but uh no on the whole i think it's a net win for us good yeah that's interesting cool Um, what else do we have on our list to talk about Raygun? I saw that Mark took a, uh, jotted down a note um, about something regarding D3.js. Yeah, I think that's what... I saw a note on that, like something about the charting that you're using. Is it built on D3? That's yeah, what's your, what's your client-side client side tech stack, is it? So the like, client-side tech stack is that we're using um, backbone.js with marionette.js um, yep. for the sort of client-side MVC sort of stuff. We've got D3 is in the mix um, because it's used by the graphs that we generate. So we're also at the moment using um, a a library, an open source library called NVD3, which is a a charting uh, library that sits on top of D3. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been a long-time fan of the the D3 project. So uh, for those people that don't know about it, it's a a kind of... um, really powerful uh, visualization and and uh, sort of library that also has a whole lot of um, sort of scientific uh, parts to it, things like time series and, uh, and things for expressing some really cool stuff. Um, so when we went looking around for different uh, ways to put a chart on the page, we experimented with a few different libraries and approaches and uh, we, we settled on, the, on that one. So I'm really hoping that down the track, the, we'll be able to leverage more and more of D3 for different other sort of cool bells and whistles and, you know, expressing data around um, how people's software is behaving. Yep. Interesting. Cool. Yep. It's a little bit daunting, the D3 project, if you just start start out with it. Um, you can do some really amazing things with it, uh, but working with it directly uh, for the first time can be quite hard, which is where it can be a really good... Um, thing that you find another library that sort of leans on it. Yeah, because then you kind of see what they're doing and sort of start to understand it um, because there's some crazy, crazy goodness that's in D3 that, yeah, you really have to think about. Mm, Okay. It's NV and Finelli D3, is that right? Uh, That's Ah. right, NV. Sorry, the Kiwi accent is not very good, and I'm yeah. Quite I, I keep, I'm Google searching for M for Mark VD3, and I'm like, why can't I find anything? <laughs> it's actually at nvd3.org. Yeah, um, you just can, looking at it, it's really nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Framework. It is some really nice, just very plain, simple graphs that do some really nice things. Yep. Yeah, nice. Oh, I like it. I'll stick that in the back pocket. Oh, that's quite interesting. You know, like what amazing stuff you can get through open source libraries, and then coming back to like you know the in double quotes enterprise software, um, you know where people pay like ten thousand dollars for a serve for for just to get charting built into their product. Absolutely. And, yeah, it doesn't stop to amaze me. Let's not talk about how Mindscape also sells desktop charting for high price. Oh, sorry. All right, then we won't talk about that. That's fine. <laughs> Never mentioned it. Didn't come up. It's it's not that high. It's it's well priced versus its competitors. Yeah, I think you know, the the .NET market traditionally, in that market, you know, people pay for components happily. It seems to be a very common thing if you're a .NET developer to yeah. buy external components, whereas in other technologies or communities that's not that much the case you know i remember like back in the flex days even though they're technically not done yet but you know when a lot of people were doing flex and you try to actually promote or sell components people would just not be willing to spend money for that you know and it seems to be in .NET land it's very very um accepted that that's what you do basically yeah, I mean, that was part of the reason we deliberately went into the .NET space initially was that people are sort of already conditioned to be buying components. We just thought that we could build better components than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think I think your point's true. It, it, it is quite different from uh, different communities. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, and I guess even using Raygun as an example, looking at the competitors that generally all target Ruby on Rails, there's, it's very unlikely that the Rails community would go out and buy components, but they seem to have a strong likelihood that they would use the software as a service, you know, provided... Uh, piece of infrastructure mm-hmm. um, you know I mean that's just just judging from my random glancing around it's not a scientific study at all and I'm sure there'll be some listeners who just flat out disagree with me on that but that that just seems to be you know I go around and see a lot of things and it's kind of like yeah here's our rail support and this is the, the monthly price but I never see somebody selling a component for rails as a one-off thing but yeah I don't know yeah that is a true point I was um I mean coming Making a quick turn to the to the confusion or CFML community about you know components and things like that, and it would be interesting to get some input from from you, Mark, on that. Um, you know, I'm doing more and more stuff with with Raylo, and for the people who don't know, which I can't really think there is anyone around, Raylo is an open source CFML engine, right? Mm. So, but Raylo doesn't support certain tags or certain functionality that Adobe Confusion supports. So, for example, Raylo doesn't have um, you know, all that extended PDF features that um, Adobe Cold Fusion has. And Adobe Cold Fusion has that, obviously, because Adobe is like the PDF company, you know, and you can do all sorts of fancy stuff with... Yeah, but they use know. iText under the hood. No, no, no I'm, not, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about generating PDF. Yeah. I'm talking yeah, about, you know... Like DDX stuff and whatnot. You know, like, yeah, exactly, DDX manipulations of PDF documents and PDF forms and merging forms with data and all of that stuff that, you yeah. know, you can do with that technology. So that's one example. The other one, other example is um, exchange support. Adobe Cold Fusion you know, would do like um, exchange support with CF Exchange and all that stuff. Rylo doesn't have anything that is built in. Mm. Um, do you think there is a market in the CFML com- developer community for those components that you could go and say like, you know what, I built CF Exchange or whatever, you know, CF underscore Exchange for for Rylo. And I might actually even build, you know, something that is nicer than the built-in version in in Adobe Cold Fusion. Would people willing to pay money for that? You think? Is it you know CFML developers, or is it one is it one of those things like, you know, they go to Rylo because they think Rylo is I, you know, free I, of charge? I and, come at it from probably a different angle. How big is your market? Oh yeah, it's small market. That's you know yeah. no but doubt. Then, but let's let's look at it that way. I mean, you go okay, CFML market. Then let's go the people who use Rylo, and then let's go the people who use Rylo and Exchange. That is a fair point. Exchange was just one example, you know. But yeah, I mean, or or the let, let's who, say, or then the people who use Rylo and need PDF support. Okay, Again, you start you start subsidizing out the community like that, and suddenly you're like, okay, there's 20 people there. Yeah, that is true. But let's then let's not talk about PDF and, and CF Exchange, but you know more general. Are CFML developers willing to pay for components or for add-on features? Well, there used to be a market back in the day. Um, really? What what did people sell? There was, there was, yeah, there was heaps of stuff. Um, there was there used to. I mean, I'm trying to actually think back in like CF5 days that you know uh, Macromedia used to run an online shop for tags and you could you really? could stuff. Yeah, I mean like I can't um, remember anything of that. <laughs> um, there was CF image tools like the Capture. There was a there was a paid for Capture service. I think then I, I ended up writing an open source one and then I think Peter Farrell ended up taking it to a next level. Um, so there was there was always a market. There was a bunch of carts. I think there still are carts you can buy. Um, there's oh, you still, mean like shopping carts? Yeah, shopping carts, things like that. Um, there was, there's a bunch of tags out there that were, used to be like it was, it was, it was a lot more prevalent that you could buy stuff. Um, these days, I think, I think uh, JD actually hit the nail on the head in terms of developers can often feel like they can write it themselves. In which case, if you're going to sell something simple, that's, um, I think you'll find that at some point some kid's going to come along and go, I could write that and give it away for free and that'll be awesome. And they'll end up doing it. Um, unless it's something not easily reproduced. That's absolutely true. I mean, we, we've seen that with a couple of products, particularly when we've launched something, just an intro into a market. And then somebody goes and built, like a classic case was that Mindscape built the first 
uh, property grid for Windows Presentation Foundation, which is kind of a weird thing. What is um, a property grid, if I may ask? That's a Windows-specific thing, right? No, not really. It's, uh, you know, when you go into an IDE and you get, like, a uh, a list on the side and it kind of has key value pairs in there, like you're setting properties uh, on things. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Like you see it a lot in 3D tools or development, right? Yeah, so yeah. so we wrote one of those for the, the new um, WPF uh, way of rendering uh, Windows um, controls in Vista and beyond. And um, we were the only one on the market with it. And it was one of my uh, regrets was that we priced it way too low. We priced it at, it was like $100 or something like that. And uh, within the first month, we jumped to making about $10,000 from that um, because it was the only one people could buy. Yep. And, you know, that, that was fantastic for us. We should have priced it at thousand dollars yeah. <laughs> um and and we sat there and we, we made some good money off that for about six months and it wasn't that a competitor entered the market in the form of a traditional competitor like another business it was that somebody went out and built a uh, built a an open source one and i remember being quite livid at the time because i thought for goodness sakes it's like 99 dollars. you just wasted like you know, two weeks of your time at least, you know, because it was quite a quite a crappy property grid that had open source. We still made plenty of sales from people who needed more. But it was like, why would you just sacrifice that amount of time for $99? Because <laughs> like, it'd be fun. So no- uh, how fun is a property grid? Clearly somewhat <laughs> fun. Yeah, but, you know, maybe the person just wanted to try it out and write something for the yeah. greater good or something like that. I mean, people have, like, you know, a variety of different motivations yeah. Why they write or write open source or put yeah. something out there? Or, or some student didn't actually have ninety nine dollars, uh, but he had more time than he had money, and he said, "Well, let's do it and we'll release it. I'll learn something." But no, I can understand the other side too. I always find that a hardship when I when I I, I found our software gets pirated a fair bit, and uh, I remember this guy wrote in a forum and he said, uh, "Here's this crack I've just made, you know, um, to get this stuff free," and I went and posted on there because. I, Obviously, I can't write this on the front of the website, but it's like he, he was from some Eastern European country where, frankly, our pricing would not fit that market. Um, mm. It fits the U.S. and parts of Europe and Australia and New Zealand, but not really anywhere else. And I just wrote, it's like, just send send us an email. Like, <laughs> if you honestly, you know, can't afford this, tell us your, tell us your story and, and whatnot, and we'll probably just help you out, you know, uh, we're, mm. we're people too. We're not. We're, it's not like you're going to be trying to, you know, contact Oracle about getting a database server for free. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, we're just a small company. Um, yeah. So always been frustrated by the fact that people would would try and rip you off rather than just send an email and say, hey, I kind of need this, but I really can't afford it. Yep. I think you know the problem. What you find there is um, it takes quite a bit of. I don't want to say you know motivation, but it takes it, you, people have to overcome their own, I know feelings to really go out there and admit to anyone else saying like I would really like to have that, but I don't have the money to do that. You know, I I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't really do that. I, I, I would if I was a student. You know, if yeah, I was, as a student, yeah. as a student, I agree. But then you can always you can always fall back to that. Oh, I'm a poor student. You know, can you maybe help me? And that—that's fair enough. But you know, if you're not a student, it's—I can see why people think it would be quite a hard sell to even try. You know, and they rather go on, you know, on whatever Pirate Bay or some other warehouse and try to find the stuff instead. Fair enough. Yep. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just—I think it's just like quite a big thing to overcome to actually, you know, send out that email and admit like, hey, I'm too poor to afford that, and but I would really like to, to use it. I, I think possibly, but I think it also comes down a little bit to your, like, where you're based. I mean, there's certainly certain countries in that where, frankly, any one of the three of us probably earn in one month what they would earn in an entire year. Mm-hmm. And it's no secret that just about everything probably looks unaffordable if they're buying it from overseas um, to people in those countries. Uh, and I don't think there's any, I don't think, 
well, I, I maybe I'm just maybe it's just me, but I wouldn't perceive any shame in in uh, somebody saying, "Hey, look, you know, I'm from I'm from whatever country, you know, um, this doesn't fit with our model. Uh, could you could you do a discount or you know do some sort of deal?" Maybe I'm just too nice to people. No, I think that is a very nice attitude. You know, it's it's just probably something that a lot of people wouldn't expect to happen, and then they even they don't even try. Probably, like I say, it's nothing. You can't really write it on the front of the website, or else you get yeah. somebody that says, you know, oh, I know I'm in San Francisco, but uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I just had to buy something expensive and I have no money left, so. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted that new iPhone and now I can't afford anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just looking on your list there, though. I- I'm curious to hear you guys talk about Glacier. Oh, okay. That is an old item from, from last, from, oh, so from the last podcast. Listen, no, no, it's, it's just podcast. an item that we didn't get to really to, to talk about. And, um, it, it doesn't take much time anyway. It's brief. I, I just were was you, looking. Were you doing stuff at it with it? Or? Yeah, I was. I was looking into finding another backup or archiving solution, right? So my my backup strategy is like manifold, as probably everyone says, right? I do. I'm doing all my machines are Macs. That's the first thing. So I'm doing obviously time machine backups, which work really great, but they are, you know, obviously local unless you swap hard drives with a friend or something like that, in case your host burns down. And I also do online backup with a service called Spider Oak. And Spider Oak is quite cool because it's one of the few services um, that can do both backup and also um, syncing between different machines. And because I've got like two machines, um, I want to sync certain things automatically whenever I change it on one machine and goes over to the other. Dropbox is quite good for that as well, obviously, because it does local sync and it does it quite um, well performing and quite quite fast. But the problem with Dropbox is encryption. And um, I mean, the, the way how the Dropbox encryption works is they encrypt your stuff with, I think, AES um, 256 or something like that. But they hold the encryption key. Which means after you upload your stuff into Dropbox, um, it is encrypted on their servers, but they can theoretically decrypt it at any time they want um, if, you know, they get subpoenaed by the federal U.S. government or something like that. And I didn't really want that, so I was looking for a service where I define the encryption key and where also the encryption obviously happens on my machine before it gets uploaded. And Spider Oak is one of those services that basically does that. So they have no way of getting or no easy, straightforward way of getting um, to my data. So that was what I'm using, Time Machine and Spider Oak for online backup. But then I've got also a whole bunch of things that I rather want to have long-term archived, you know, like stuff that's sitting on your big archive hard drive, like, I don't know, photos from the last 20 years or, you know, scanned documents from your childhood, or comic books. I've got, like, zillions of electronic comics, actually. And um, I was looking for a solution for that, and I thought Glacier might be quite nice, because it's obviously cheap, and if, you know, if I need to get that back, it doesn't really matter if it takes a while to get it back, because how Glacier works is you can request data to, you know, be delivered back to you, but they don't do that immediately. Mm. Um, they just put it in a queue, and at some point within the next few hours, you know, or you know, probably in the worst case scenario, even more than a few hours, you will get access to it and you will get that data. You know, the benefit of using Glacier is obviously it's dirt cheap. So I think I'm storing about 100 gig on Glacier now, um, just backup data or archive data. I'm paying something like two dollars a month, or I know it's just ridiculous. Good. Just ridiculously slow, and the storage is actually really cheap. You pay an additional few cents per gig for you know transaction cost to the Glacier service, mm. but overall it's like dirt cheap compared to other solutions. One thing, just as a question, Kai, and this was just from my looking around. Um, so I, one one thing as well, did you mention that Glacier is an Amazon service? 
No, I didn't mention that, but yeah, Glacier is an Amazon service. (laughs) Well, I I was doing some reading um, at the time of it being sort of announced a few months back, and the only thing, and I I have no idea whether it was true or not, was the there was a comment that, yes, Glacier is super cheap for storing stuff in, but that it was quite expensive if you did want to get the data back. Have you uh, looked into that? Yeah, getting the data back is definitely more expensive than um, storing it. The, okay, so there's a charge for retrieval more so than, than storage. Yeah, basically, okay. because it's it's meant to be an archiving archiving service where you know you hopefully don't really want to get the data back, basically, or don't have to get the data back. It, and that's I think that's just the the way how they balance the cost. So retri- that's a good point, though. Re- retrieving the data in case you need it is more expensive than sending the data, basically. But it's still you know compared to S3. It's still much much cheaper either either direction. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to do all the glacier interaction myself, obviously. And I found one tool on a Mac that uses or that can use glacier for backup. It's called Arc A R Q. And I started to use that. And um, it's actually in the end now that my backup has completed and you know everything's up there. I would say it's a quite good tool. It has a few really funny quirks when it comes to the UI and the way how it's displaying stuff during the backup. Because what happened to me is I had to, you know, reboot my, it was like a massive backup set, like 100 gig. And with an ADSL line, obviously that takes quite a bit because my upstream is like just um, one Mbit per second. Um, so I had my computer running for something like, I don't know, two weeks, pretty much 24-7 uploading data all the time. And um, what happened is actually when you stopped the um, the Arc service in the background or you had to reboot your computer, it would behave really weirdly in a way that it looks like as if it's starting from scratch. And that happened to me like, you know, two or three days after I started the whole backup process. Um, and I had like 15 gig already backupped. And I restarted my machine. It came up again and said like zero percent of seventy something gig. And I thought, what the fuck? This can't be true. You know, like what am I supposed to do? And basically, I posted that on Twitter. And the guy who um, basically runs it or who owns the products came back to to me on Twitter and said like, oh yeah, that's just the way how it displays it. And after a while, if you leave it running for you know a few hours, it will have picked up what it has already uploaded. Oh, like then, it goes checks first. Like and then... jump, jump to whatever, 17% or something yeah. like that. And yeah, that's fair enough. But you know, if you don't know that, um, it's a really weird thing to actually look at. You think like, oh no, it starts from scratch. Really, how is that supposed to work? Yeah. And a lot of people in his forums actually have reported exactly that issue and have asked questions like, oh, I had to restart my computer or restart the service and it's back to zero percent. And I think like, yeah, maybe you want to do something about that. You know, that's one of those UI things where just a lot of people would be turned off, I think, if they don't get a proper explanation and they stumble across that. Well, it, it's going full circle, isn't it? Back to what we said earlier. It's like it's irrelevant how the backend code for his system is working. The UI is is a problem. That experience for its end users is that they're feeling exactly stupid yep. or it's broken when it's not. Uh, so he he's letting himself down. Yeah, exactly. That's what I what I think as well. You know, but besides that, it works fine. I you know I backed up all my stuff. I um I recovered a few documents out of there just to make sure that that also works. And yeah, it seems to be fine. And whenever I throw something into that whole big archive thing, I just switch it on, let it run for a few hours now, and it pushes it up to to Glacier. So I'm quite happy with that solution as like a whatever third or fourth level backup long-term archiving archiving solution cool so that's arc spelled a-r-q a-r-q yeah and the way how the 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 product works is basically just a one-off purchase Um, i think it's like 29 us dollars you buy the software and then it just makes use of you know whatever your aws account is right Makes cool. me wish I didn't have a mix of Macs and PCs. 
Yeah, I mean there are other solutions probably um, that you could that you could actually um, use quite nicely to um, to deal with that. Even yeah. it, I mean Dropbox works cross-platform, but it doesn't use um, Glacier or something like that. So I know. Cool. Quickly, bef- jumping from the Glacier topic to something else. Um, last time, Mark and I spoke about Mercurial. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, three shit. people care. No, there are more than three people. Five. Oh. What do they care about? So what? we had like a, an interesting discussion about you know Mercurial and Mercurial hosting <laughs> solutions. And when Kai says discussion, basically he ranted on for 15 minutes, and I went, uh-huh. And I ranted on, on it for <laughs> 10 minutes, maybe, because there is nothing around anymore that you can actually easily use to, to host Mercurial behind your firewall in your own organization if you want to do that, right? And with Git, there is Stash, for example, from Atlassian. That is a really cool product where you can do exactly that. So Chris, one of our listeners, actually, he mentioned in the comments to last last um, to the last episode, that you can obviously just start a local web server that is built in Mercurial, and you can, ho- so to say, host your Mercurial repository yourself. That is fine to share data with other people, but it's not really an awesome solution to run, like, you know, your whole development environment or your development repository, where you would probably want to have some more features. Yeah. But why I want to come back to that is I had a bit of a look around, like, you know, I created a Twitter column, uh, tweet that column um, looking for mercurial stuff and there are actually quite a few people using that it's seriously mark it's, it's definitely small way smaller than the git community it's really big but it's, and i understand yeah, I get but it's uh, 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 there's like some balkan islands somewhere I'm, that's I'm, like preaching uh, really... against the wall <laughs> it's just so sad with you people really i'm curious about how many cold fusion developers who are building against exchange need Mercurial. <laughs> a tiny amount of people, probably. I totally give that. I totally give that. No, but Mercurial is a good system. You know, I don't know why not more people are using it. But to, to be to be honest with you, Kai. So I used to use Mercurial, mm-hmm. and I used Mercurial partly because Git used to suck so bad on Windows. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of the client side um, experience, yep. we then started to use GitHub, mm-hmm. and to be honest, um, again, I'm not I'm not a, a an Uber nerd, but to me, GitHub is what actually makes Git usable for the 80% developer, or maybe the 95% developer. You still need the command line occasionally. That's fine. You know, I'm not saying you need a complete sort of herp derp solution, but um, it adds a lot of, of nice usability stuff to it. So I, I personally was continuing to use Bitbucket for mm-hmm. my personal repositories, and I was initially using Mercurial on that as well. The problem that I see is that in the last sort of 12 months, the tooling and support and stuff on on Windows has improved quite a lot for for Git. Even Atlassian have released a new Git for Windows uh, sort of client. I forget the name. There is um, Source Tree. You mean? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Source Tree is a Mac tool, and they ported it to Windows, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it it works quite nicely, and and I think that's starting to solve a lot of the solutions for where it was problematic on on Windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and and unfortunately, I, I feel like Git. Git kind of got away on you, buddy. Uh, no, I'm, I'm you not. Ag- I'm not against Git. I'm actually using both. Right now, it, does, yeah. it totally depends on the particular scenario. I've got lots of repository on GitHub, and I've got a, a bunch of other things on Bitbucket. But what I find is exactly for the reasons you mentioned. You know, if you introduce version co- or distributed version control into an organization that is Windows heavy, it's at least in the past it used to be much easier to get people on board and get people going if you use Mercurial over Git. And, you know, SourceStream might actually make a difference, but I found, for example, the, the Git in Eclipse integration just shocking. It was so bad that it was totally, you know, turning people who worked in the whole Eclipse ecosystem totally away from it. Yeah. But, yeah, whatever, it's fine. I just wanted to, you know, say, like, I've got that Mercurial Twitter column now, and there is more stuff going on than Mark is actually making making us believe it is it's because it's fun <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it's okay i still like you 
I'm, I'm just happy that I've learned another way to troll you, Kai. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All righty. So um, how long are we already going for, Mark? Yeah, we keep... we've been at least an hour. Really? Yeah, so... and Danny needs to run as well, so let's wrap this up. So we probably should wrap up then, yeah. It sounds good. All right, so JD, if people want to reach you, bug you, harass you in any way, shape, or form, how should they do that? Uh, if they're curious about the, the Raygun product itself, they should check out uh, http colon slash slash raygun.io. And if they wanted to email me, uh, I am JD at mindscape, M-I-N-D-S-C-A-P-E, dot co dot NZ. That's the easiest one anyway. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter as TraskJD, T-R-A-S-K-J-D. Cool. And if people want to harass you, Kai? Um, Agent K on Twitter or through my blog, blogandblack.de. Or they can just mention Mercurial on Twitter. Exactly. It will pop up in my Twitter column <laughs> automatically. Yep. Yep. Just just ask if anyone's using Mercurial and then Kai will be like, I am. And then there's silence. <laughs> Uh, me, me, I'm the other uh, person. It's the Kai signal. <laughs> the, you know what? The Mercurial Pitchfork team are like going to come like raise my house now and just, <laughs> you know, all two of them. But um, <laughs> there is a Mercurial Ku Klux Klan, you know, subdivision somewhere. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> oh my god. All right, <laughs> moving along. Uh, yeah, if you want to reach me, uh, compoundtheory.com is the blog, uh, and Neurotic on Twitter. Uh, and the blog is, uh, sorry, and the podcast is at 2DDUD is in delta.com. Um, any final words there, Kai? Yeah, I've got a question for JD, actually. Do you get a lot of confused people who, um, approach Mindscape because they think it's the, you know, the game company? Uh, less and less because the, the game company, from what I can tell, kind of folded, uh, about a year or two ago. They, they uh, sort of okay. fell over. They still have some, outlets around the world that are still trying to trade under that name but i think we're pretty much beating it so, okay uh, oh cool yeah, i was just wondering <laughs> yeah a lot of people just kind of if they they sort of go oh mindscape i remember that from the 80s but then i'm only 30 so it uh you know they look well confused about how i'd be running a company in the 80s but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair enough yeah yeah those were my final final words cool, cool. Mark. all right thanks cool. for having me guys thanks thanks for, for joining us yep it was good fun. Cheers. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later.